Greetings, fellow pilgrims. It's July 15th. Welcome to our Wilderness Oasis, the one-year Bible tour guide, a podcast in which we set aside time to read through God's holy word and let it do its renewing work in the spirit of our minds, helping us to lay aside our old self, that is, our Adamic inheritance of a life dominated by self-interest, and pick up our inheritance of a new life in Christ which propels us to become more like Him, more like Jesus. And what a dangerous prayer that is. Lord, make me more like Jesus. So in reading through the Bible, we are not just tourists on the bus, but we are seeking to actively engage with God's story, His perspective, and His counsel through reliance on the perfect work of redemption and the power of the Holy Spirit. We want to advance in the sanctifying process of transformation into Christ-likeness. My name is David McAdam, and this is episode 196 for this year. We are making progress in both the Old and New Testaments. Today we find ourselves in familiar territory in the book of First Chronicles, as we have already observed these events from another viewpoint in our previous reading of the book of Second Samuel. We take on new territory, however, in the New Testament, the clear exposition written by the Apostle Paul of what God did to provide justification, sanctification, and glorification in the person of Jesus Christ. And this work of salvation is available to all who come to Christ in penitent faith. So let's step out and take in what God wants to show us in His Word, starting with the Old Testament reading in 1 Chronicles chapter 19. 1 Chronicles chapter 19, The Ammonites Disgrace David's Men, beginning with verse 1. Now after this, Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, died, and his son reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal kindly with Hanun, the son of Nahash, for his father dealt kindly with me. So David sent messengers to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came to the land of the Ammonites to Hanun to console him. But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanun, Do you think because David has sent comforters to you that he is honoring your father? Have not his servants come to you to search and to overthrow and to spy out the land? So Hanun took David's servants and shaved them and cut off their garments in the middle at the hips and sent them away and they departed. When David was told concerning the men, he sent messengers to meet them, for the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, Remain at Jericho until your beards have grown, and then returned. When the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David, Hanan and the Ammonites sent one thousand talents of silver to hire chariots and horsemen from Mesopotamia, from Aram Maka, and from Zobah. They hired thirty-two thousand chariots, and the king of Maka with his army, who came and encamped before Medeba. And the Ammonites were mustered from their cities and came to battle. When David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the army of the mighty men. And the Ammonites came out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the city. And the kings who had come were by themselves in the open country." When Joab saw that the battle was set against him, both in front and in the rear, he chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. The rest of his men he put in the charge of Abishai his brother, and they were arrayed against the Ammonites. And he said, If the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. 
But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will help you. Be strong, and let us use our strength for our people and for the cities of our God, and may the Lord do what seems good to him. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near before the Syrians for battle, and they fled before him. And when the Ammonites saw that the Syrians fled, they likewise fled before Abishai, Joab's brother, and entered the city. Then Joab came to Jerusalem. But when the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they sent messengers and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the Euphrates, with Shophak, the commander of the army of Hadadezer, at their head. And when it was told to David, he gathered all Israel together, and crossed the Jordan, and came to them, and drew up his forces against them. And when David set the battle in array against the Syrians, they fought with him. And the Syrians fled before Israel, and David killed of the Syrians the men of seven thousand chariots and forty thousand foot soldiers, and put to death also Shophak the commander of their army. And when the servants of Hadadezer saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with David, and became subject to him. So the Syrians were not willing to save the Ammonites any more. Chapter 20. The Capture of Rabbah In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, Joab led out the army and ravaged the country of the Ammonites, and came and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem, and Joab struck down Rabbah and overthrew it. And David took the crown of their king from his head. He found that it weighed a talent of gold, and in it was a precious stone, and it was placed on David's head, and he brought out the spoil of the city, a very great amount, and he brought out the people who were in it, and set them to labor with saws and iron picks and axes. And thus David did to all the cities of the Ammonites. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. And after this there arose a war with the Philistines at Gezer. Then Sibachai the Hushathite struck down Sippai, who was one of the descendants of the giants, and the Philistines were subdued. And there was again war with the Philistines. And Elhanan, the son of Jair, struck down Lami, the brother of Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. And there was again war at Gath, where there was a man of great stature, who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, twenty-four in number, and he was descended from the giants. And when he taunted Israel, Jonathan the son of Shemaiah, David's brother, struck him down. These were descended from the giants in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. Chapter 21 David's census brings pestilence. Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So David said to Joab and the commanders of the army, Go, number Israel, from Beersheba to Dan, and bring me a report, that I may know their number. But Joab said, May the Lord add to his people a hundred times as many as they are. Are they not, my lord the king, all of them my lord's servants? Why then should my lord require this? Why should it be a cause of guilt for Israel? But the king's word prevailed against Joab. So Joab departed and went throughout all Israel and came back to Jerusalem. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to David. In all Israel were one million one hundred thousand men who drew the sword, and in Judah four hundred and seventy thousand who drew the sword. But he did not include Levi and Benjamin in the numbering, for the king's command was abhorrent to Joab. But God was displeased with this thing, and he struck Israel. 
And David said to God, I have sinned greatly in that I have done this thing. But now please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. And the Lord spoke to Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you, choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Choose what you will, either three years of famine or three months of devastation by your foes while the sword of your enemies overtakes you, or else three days of the sword of the Lord, pestilence on the land, with the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. Now decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is very great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel, and seventy thousand men of Israel fell. And God sent the angel to Jerusalem to destroy it, but as he was about to destroy it, the Lord saw, and he relented from the calamity. And he said to the angel who was working destruction, It is enough, now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was standing by the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. And David lifted his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven, and in his hand a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders, clothed in sackcloth, fell upon their faces. And David said to God, Was it not I who gave command to number the people? It is I who have sinned and done great evil. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand, O Lord my God, be against me and against my father's house, but do not let the plague be on your people. Now the angel of the Lord had commanded Gad to say to David that David should go up and raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word, which he had spoken in the name of the Lord. Now Ornan was threshing wheat. He turned and saw the angel, and his four sons who were with him hid themselves. As David came to Ornan, Ornan looked and saw David, and went out from the threshing floor and paid homage to David with his face to the ground. And David said to Ornan, Give me the site of the threshing floor, that I may build on it an altar to the Lord. Give it to me at its full price, that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Ornan said to David, Take it, and let my lord the king do what seems good to him. See, I give the oxen for burnt offerings, and the threshing sledges for the wood, and the wheat for the grain offering. I give it all. But King David said to Ornan, No, but I will buy them for the full price. I will not take for the Lord what is yours, nor offer burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David paid Ornan six hundred shekels of gold by weight for the site. And David built there an altar to the Lord, and presented burnt offerings and peace offerings, and called on the Lord. And the Lord answered him with fire from heaven upon the altar of burnt offering. Then the Lord commanded the angel, and he put his sword back into its sheath. At that time, when David saw that the Lord had answered him at the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite, he sacrificed there. For the tabernacle of the Lord, which Moses had made in the wilderness, and the altar of burnt offering, were at that time in the high place at Gibeon. But David could not go before it to inquire of God, for he was afraid of the sword of the angel of the Lord. And this concludes today's portion of our reading from the Old Testament, from the book of First Chronicles.
Now let's step back and take in what we have just read, recapping and reflecting upon its pertinence to our lives today. We are revisiting incidents that we read about previously in 2 Samuel chapter 10, verses 1 through 19, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 26 through 31, and 2 Samuel chapter 24. The writer of Chronicles emphasizes the positive details in David's story. This is because the writer is looking forward to the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. A king is coming who, like David, will be motivated by kindness. Did you see David's intent to deal kindly with Hanun in 1 Chronicles chapter 19, verse 2? This future son of David, this future coming king, will be honored as king of kings, gaining the allegiance and the crowns of other monarchs, in 1 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 2. In the New Testament, we see how Jesus of Nazareth fulfills this expectation. In Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, we read, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, or crowns in the King James Version and the NIV, New International Version. And he has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Nothing is mentioned in this chronicler's account of David's tragic sins of adultery, murder, and the deceitful cover-up following his illicit relationship with Bathsheba, Uriah's wife. All we read about the incident in Chronicles is found in the sentence, But David remained in Jerusalem. 1 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 1. The insertion of the full story as recorded in Second Samuel would not have served the writer's purpose, which is to look back on David's reign and see the qualities that would be reflected to a greater degree by the promised greater David, the son of David, the Messiah, the Christ. In one sense, David's story reminds us that God does take our tragic history of sin in Adam and rewrites it in Christ, so our sins and iniquities he remembers no more. David describes the blessedness of a man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Romans chapter 4 verses 6 through 8. However, we know that in the history of Israel, there were grave consequences in David's life because of his sin. He felt these personally, as did his family and the nation. Another of David's sins that also had national repercussions is recorded in both 2 Samuel chapter 24 and 1 Chronicles chapter 20. It is when David, motivated by pride, decides to take a census to number his great kingdom of Israel. There were times that God ordered that a census be taken for purposes that he made known. In Numbers chapter 1 verses 1 through 3 and chapters 26 verses 1 to 2. But God did not order this one. First Chronicles, we get important information that is not recorded in Second Samuel. It is Satan that inspired this census. First Chronicles chapter 21, verse 1. Then Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. Second Samuel chapter 24 lets us know that God permitted Satan to do this to accomplish what he had in mind. How does Satan influence the thoughts of men and women? Satan cannot read our minds, but he can read our behavior. He recognizes what captures our attention, 
what motivates our speech, and what influences our decisions. He and his demonic forces can somehow insert thoughts into our own thought stream. He knows what buttons to push that would cause emotional reactions that would distort our hearing and short-circuit our understanding. He blinds the minds of those who believe not. He and his forces of darkness can speak in our tone of voice using the first-person pronoun and get us to think that we are thinking what are actually his thoughts or his lies. He makes us think that we are the author of every thought in our mind's subvocalization. The tempter knows how to get us to swallow specifically chosen lures and baits that he uses to reel us in for his catch. He knows he has a great gullible ally in our flesh. We are told to submit to God and resist the devil in James chapter 4 verse 7. An important means of resisting Satan is to discern what is influencing our current thinking. Satan's core sin is pride. Isaiah chapter 14 verses 13 to 14, Ezekiel chapter 28 verse 17. He knows how to dupe us into schemes that will jack up our ego. This is what he did with David. David's victories and successes were all due to the Lord being with him in 1 Samuel chapter 18 verse 14. Rather than boasting in the Lord, Satan knew David could easily be swayed to boast in the number of his people instead. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but where are those who trust in the Lord? Reading through the Bible, we have learned that God is not dependent upon numbers. He looks upon the heart. He does a lot with the humble, the dependent, and the few. G. Campbell Morgan writes, quote, A decrease in membership is not always a calamity. God can do more with 300 men of a certain quality than 32,000 of a mixed mob of fearful and self-centered souls, as we saw in Judges chapter 7. When we are moved in this sense to number the people, we may rest assured that the impulse is divine or satanic, and we may determine which by the motive. If the motive is service, it is God. If the motive is pride, it is satanic. If we are walking after the flesh rather than the spirit, the enemy of our souls can move our thoughts and feelings in ways that suit him. Therefore, we need to be on guard. The Apostle Paul uses the analogy from the Old Testament of necessary and useful spiritual armor that we can use as we stand in the victory of Christ over Satan. We need the belt of truth for spiritual discernment, which refers to the whole of Scripture. Isaiah speaks of resorting to the law and to the testimony, line upon line, precept upon precept, in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 20, and chapter 28, verse 10. Paul also sees the need for us to put on Christ and make no provision for the flesh, in Romans 13, verse 14. We are to put on Christ as He is revealed in all of the Scriptures and walk in the Spirit, pursuing righteousness. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 5 reads, also righteousness will be the belt about his loins, and faithfulness the belt about his waist. Isaiah chapter 59 verse 17 He put on righteousness like a breastplate, and a helmet of salvation on his head. And he put on garments of vengeance for clothing, and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. King David got into trouble when he did not have the mindset to be actively engaged in doing what would bring glory to God and benefit to others. Satan's thoughts and the wayward thoughts of the flesh are like fiery darts that would seek to penetrate and destroy our souls. We intercept them and extinguish them with the shield of faith. Jesus answered the tempter in the wilderness holding high the shield of faith 
it is written in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4. Again, it is written in Matthew chapter 4, verse 7. Be gone, Satan, for it is written Matthew chapter 4, verse 10. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11. King David gave in to the devil's schemes. His actions were influenced by satanically induced pride. His commander, Joab, warned him that he would be bringing guilt upon Israel. In chapter 21, verse 3, the results were catastrophic. This command was evil in the sight of God, so he punished Israel. Chapter 21, verse 7, David does repent and says those important words to God, I have sinned. 1 Chronicles 21, verse 8. The Lord said to the prophet Gad that he was giving David three options for chastisement, three years of famine, three months of being swept away by his enemies, or three days subject to the sword of the Lord, days of plague in the land. David's preference is to be dealt with by the Lord directly rather than being ravaged by famine or enemy troops. You may remember this story from Second Samuel. The Lord sent a devastating plague that killed 70,000 men. The Lord calls the angel of the Lord, who is standing on the threshing floor of Arana, here called Ornan, to withdraw his hand. He asks that an altar be built to stop the plague. This is the same place where the angel of the Lord stayed Abraham's hand when he was about to offer up Isaac. This is also the place where Jesus would be crucified 1,000 years later. David, after repenting of his sin, offers his life and that of his household as a substitute for the people of Jerusalem, who are now facing potential decimation. David said to God, Is it not I who commanded to count the people? Indeed, I am the one who has sinned and done very wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? O Lord my God, please let your hand be against me and my father's household, but not against your people, that they should be plagued. 1 Chronicles chapter 21, verses 17 and 18. This reminds us of when Moses offered his life as a substitute to take the punishment due to fall upon his people. Exodus chapter 32, verse 32. But now, if you will, forgive their sin, and if not, please blot me out from your book, which you have written. In both the cases of Moses and David, the Lord refused their offers to be sin-bearing substitutes. Why? Because they themselves were sinners, sorely in need of a sinless substitute. It was not until Jesus arrives that God would grant the request for substitution. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In 1 Chronicles 21, verse 18, we read, Then the angel of the Lord commanded Gad to say to David that David should go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. The Lord was picking the site for the temple. This is where the Son of God would reverse the curse and defeat Satan. When David offers to purchase the threshing floor for the full price so he can build an altar in obedience to the Lord, Arana, or as he is referred to here in the book of 1 Chronicles, Ornan, offers it to David for free. But King David said to Ornan, No, but I will surely buy it for the full price, for I will not take what is yours for the Lord, or offer a burnt offering which costs me nothing. 1 Chronicles 21, verse 24. It is a prophetic statement foreshadowing the expected son of David, 
who would pay the full price for our salvation. It would cost him everything. Now let's move on to our next stop, which is the New Testament reading from the book of Romans, chapter 2, verse 25, through to chapter 3, verse 8. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So, if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Chapter 3. God's Righteousness Upheld Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though every one were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to His glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. And this concludes today's portion from the New Testament, Paul's letter to the Romans. Paul gives an honest assessment of the advantages that have been given to the Jewish people. They have the Scriptures in Romans chapter 3, verse 2. They were entrusted with the very words of God in Exodus chapters 19 and 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 8. They were God's chosen covenant people. They were the race through whom the Messiah would come to bring salvation in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 10 and Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. They have a history of God's dealing with them in which God was proved to be faithful. This should build their faith. But Paul is making the case that apart from faith, they have no righteousness of their own, neither do the Gentiles. Their privileges did not make them better than others. In fact, they made them more responsible. And so we move on to our next stop on our Bible tour, the Bible songbook, the book of Psalms, Psalm 11, verses 1 through 7. The Lord is in His holy temple. To the choir master, a psalm of David. Psalm 11. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, Flee like a bird to your mountain. For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but His soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. The psalmist is surrounded by people who are afraid of enemy attacks. They want to quit. They want to flee. David speaks back to his fearful associates, saying, In the Lord I take refuge. 
How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? Psalm 11, verse 1. Have you ever felt like quitting or running away when the going gets tough? Take refuge in the Lord. I think of our own nation when I read verse 3. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? We desire to live righteously and have our children and communities live righteously. But when our society repudiates the biblical foundation of honoring God's word, what are the righteous to do? Never forget, no matter what the situation looks like, God is on His heavenly throne. In verse 4, He will prevail. The Lord gives careful attention to deal with those who are in relationship with Him, in which they are trusting Him to be and do all that He has declared in His word. He tests the righteous. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold His face. Verse 7. And now we go to the Bible's treasure chest of wisdom, the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 19, verses 10 through 12. It is not fitting for a fool to live in luxury, much less for a slave to rule over princes. Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. A king's wrath is like the growling of a lion, but his favor is like dew on the grass. The writer of Proverbs observes that sometimes there are characters that do not fit their station. They lack the competence. He's not saying that people cannot improve their station in life, but he points out that sometimes people are promoted to positions they are not able to handle or rewards for their labor that they do not deserve. A person who is wise will hold his tongue. He makes a conscious choice to diffuse his anger. Love forbears and forgives. It is wise to take precautions to avoid the king's wrath. His favor should be welcomed like the morning dew. Matthew Henry has an interesting take on this set of Proverbs. Quote, A man that has not wisdom and grace has no right or title to true joy. It is very unseemly for one who is a servant to sin to oppress God's freemen. He attains the most true glory who endeavors most steadily to overcome evil with good. Christ is a king whose wrath against his enemies will be as the roaring of a lion and his favor to his people as the refreshing dew. End quote. Now let's pray. Lord, we thank you that in Christ we have the sure mercies of David. Thank you again for the gift of the forgiveness of our sins and the gift of a right standing with you in the righteousness of your Son. You have made him to be for us the perfect solution to the problem of our sin, our wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Keep us from ever boasting in anything other than your glory and grace. We are blessed with all that is freely given to us in and through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Well, that wraps up today's readings from the One Year Bible, and we look forward to continuing tomorrow. Again, if you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can write us at podcast at newlife.org or leave comments wherever you receive your podcasts. And if you would like a written copy of our commentary on each day's reading, you can subscribe to an email at newlife.org. So this is Pastor David McAdam of New Life Community Church in Concord, Massachusetts, saying goodbye and God bless you. And may you in every way be enriched in him who is our Lord and Savior. Shalom. Shalom.